What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. All right, everybody, welcome back. Another edition of the Announcer Schedules podcast. We're coming off of all of the summer sports, uh, the fall sports kind of ending. We're getting ready for football coming up, the middle of the baseball season here. So we figured, why not talk to a very versatile broadcaster in the announcer world? And uh, here on a standalone podcast for the announcer schedules, Mike and Phil, we bring in George Sedano, who basically is the jack of all trades and master of them all, George Sedano. <laughs> so if I was to say, here's George Sedano, how am I introducing George, who basically has done it all for ESPN, also hosts radio, sidelines. So what is George Sedano in George Sedano's mind? The uh, ultimate Swiss Army knife for ESPN, right? I think that's a good way to describe it. Kind of culture carrier, too, I like to, uh, I like to think as well. Uh, you know, I always tell the uh, powers that be that, uh, you know, you grow up in my age range and ESPN is the dream, right? So I was able to kind of achieve that. So the fact that I can do a lot of different things there is even more cool, I think, for sure. Yeah, um, and and I what I think is cool is you and I share uh, something in common. You, you host a weekday show on the radio, and a lot of people, you know, uh, radio still that medium that uh, when you're in that world, George, it's like something that's just a passion. There's nothing like hosting a live radio show. So let's talk a little bit about that because a lot of people uh, that we talk to are play-by-players or analysts. First and foremost, you've done a lot of that, but the everyday radio show still a very cool thing. Oh, no question about it. It's my first love. There's no question. And it's where I got my start in the business. And it will forever be part of what I do. I think it helps me in a big way, honestly, when I do the other stuff. I always get, I guess my colleagues will tell me, man, it's so it's so easy for you sometimes how conversational you can be when doing your reporting on the sidelines or when you're calling a game. And I'm like, yeah, it's just radio. I do three hours of live radio every day and been doing that for nearly over 20 years now. So I think that that always helps because let's face it, when you're doing live radio and you get this mic, there's a lot of stuff that can get thrown at you. There's a lot of wrenches, a lot of curveballs, however you want to describe it. So when you're doing a game, that certainly is going to be the case too. So I just think one prepares you for the other on multiple levels. So to me, those three hours that I come in to do the radio show every day are the most fun part of my day, the easiest part of my day. When I'm doing a game, there's a lot of prep, right? Not that there's not prep going on for the radio, but if you're us, we're consuming sports all the time. In my head, I'm always working out takes and working out opinions all the time. I think it's just a completely different skill set when you're doing a game. They're just different muscles that you're using with your brain as opposed to the radio. And when you've done it like myself for over 20 years now, it's just second nature. Like I'm always thinking when I'm watching TV or listening to something like, oh, that's great for the show. I can come up with it uh, and discuss this topic this way and then I can spin it this way for my own opinion, et cetera, et cetera. So it's just something that's second nature at this point. Yeah, I had the curveball yesterday when James Harden opted in and then wanted to be yeah. traded. That happened live yeah. on the air, and those are the yeah. moments that we all kind of you know yearn for. You have a show planned out, and then that curveball comes flying in. Now, George, you talk about the curveball. 
talk about how the radio show transformed and kind of launched all these other opportunities. I mean, you know, many people who would say George Stano, uh, NBA, see him on the sidelines all the time. So how did that kind of, you know, was the jumping, how was radio the jumping off point uh, for those opportunities? Well, it started when I worked in Miami. And when I worked in Miami, I did sports talk radio there as a youngster. I mean, I was a baby when I started doing sports talk radio in Miami. I was 22 years old at that point. I'm 45 now. And, you know, when you work in a local town, the teams listen. So that just became the opportunity. I started doing stuff with the Miami Heat. And they came to me first to do their pre and post game uh, during the Shaq and Dwayne Wade years. And then that led to some TV opportunities with them, which uh, really began more in the pundit role in a lot of cases, particularly on their pre pregame, particularly. And then they came to me a number of years later when LeBron and Wade and Bosch were there about hosting duties. And I started doing their road studio games, basically. So Jason Jackson, who's been there forever, studio host, now their radio play-by-play person as well. And... At that time, they were like, we, we'd like for Jax to be on the road all the time. And that way he can do his stuff from there and he can do his sideline and be part of the pre and post game there. So I would just anchor the studio portion of it. And I did that for a little bit. And that's how it, it started. And then ESPN had come to me previously because of my radio work. And it didn't work out the first couple of times when we chatted. And they would bring me on occasionally during that time to – be a pundit on first take and debate Skip and Stephen A whenever they were in town, which was a lot back then during those LeBron Wade Bosch years. And that's how it all just kind of started to become a thing, right? Where ESPN started to see more and more of my work. They would have me on SportsCenter as a guest. They would have me on first take as a guest. Um, they really wanted me to be a part of the radio lineup at some point. So it all kind of came together that way. But it all started doing local shows in Miami for many, many years on a couple of different stations over the years. Uh, and and that led to the TV opportunities with the Heat and a local TV opportunity, too. I was kind of the, the third person on the local CBS O&O at Channel 4 there. So all that stuff just kind of came together just from the local radio. George, great to see you on here. You know, I date back to those early days of yours in the, the Miami market, and I can't help but remember where you got your start. 1700 The Fan. And, you know, this isn't a town where you know wqam was this you know huge bmf and wiod and you know and so forth and here you and guys like john renshaw and some of these other uh folks were grinding away at 1700 the fan i remember listening to you guys and you brought a whole different sort of style to the to the market and that kind of thing but what was it like to get your start there at you know really being the kind of the underdog in the market and you know maybe there's a story or two that you can reflect on well, Phil, you definitely remember me as a child, basically doing those shows and, and covering games back then, for sure. Uh, and it is great to see you as well. And yeah, look, I, I was just a kid. I mean, what the hell did I know? Somebody I, I was working my internship at the time was at CBS Sportsline is what it was called. CBS Sportsline dot com and CBS dot com. Eventually, that's what that eventually CBS Sportsline dot com became eventually became CBS Sports dot com. That is based in Fort Lauderdale. And so my internship was there. They had just launched an audio department there. And interestingly enough, my partner now in L.A., Scott Kaplan, was one of the hosts there. And they were doing a, tw I don't know if it was 24-hour, but they were doing at least a 12-hour 
uh, audio network on the internet there. And that's how I got my internship. I got my foot in the door there. Those guys recommended me for the 1700, the fan job. This was 1700 at the time. I'm, I, it may still be the case. I don't know was on what they called the experimental dial. <laughs> so most radios at that time in 1999 didn't go past 1600 on the dial. So unless you had a new car with digital uh, with a digital radio, you didn't even get 1700, which huh. was obviously a fascinating time uh, when you think about where we are today, where we're doing this call over StreamYard uh, yeah. <laughs> and we're doing this podcast there. But so I got an opportunity there to be a producer and an update anchor. And I was producing and up doing updates for Jim Barry, who was the local sports guy at Channel 4, who I worked with when I eventually did TV there. And I worked with him as his update guy, producer, etc. And then, you know, this business is strange. Uh, the, the morning, um, actually, I wasn't even doing updates then. Let me take that back. I was literally just his board op slash producer. So Morning update guy gets fired for one reason or another. I don't even remember. And the boss comes to me and says, hey, kid, you want to do updates in the morning and then produce Jim Barry? And I'm like, yeah, let's go. <laughs> so that's how it started. And then as time went by, more changes happened at this mom and pop radio station on the experimental dial. And then I got on the air and I just let it rip. Basically, there was no holds barred back then. This is the wild, wild west still. Remember, sports radio really was a birthed in the 90s. So this is still very early on in that era of sports talk radio. So lo and behold, I find myself on the air every day doing middays. And I, I just was being me. I was kind of the local kid who had grown up there. Most of the other talent, for the most part, were not local guys. They were guys they brought in from other parts of the country uh, for one reason or another. There was maybe one or two other guys who had lived there for a little bit. So I got to be that kind of local guy as a as a kid, just kind of yelling and screaming and, and trying to figure it out. And also taking some pot shots at the competition, which probably wasn't in my best interest as uh, later on it became a bit of a challenge once that station went by the wayside to get a job. But... <laughs> Uh, it eventually all worked out for me uh, in the end. Yeah, love hearing that story, George, and uh, music to my ears to hear some of those names and, and so forth. But, you know, what people might not realize is that the Miami-Fort Lauderdale market, I actually looked this up just to get the, the current number, 18th in the Nielsen market size rankings. But it plays in acts much, much bigger than the 18th biggest market in the country. And then there's guys like yourself, Lebetard, Boog, Bob was choosing, you know, the list goes on and on of guys who got their start just like you in the sports radio scene down there in Miami and then have gone on to national things. What's it about Miami and like the, the nature of the beast down there that gets guys like yourself prepared for the, the national spotlight? Well, it's one of the few cities that had four major sports teams, right? I think there's that. And I think that you had big time college athletics there too with the University of Miami. So from a sports perspective, you're covering the entire gamut. And I think what helped me was the fact that when I was the young upstart, whether it was at 1700 or later at 940, which is a, was a clear channel station at the time, uh, iHeartNow, or 790 the ticket before even getting to QAM much later in my career there, it was just the competition 
where you mentioned it earlier at QAM, you had the behemoth of the old time guys, Hank Goldberg, who had been a, a staple on ESPN for many years at the time already. Wasn't always the nicest human being to uh, younger people. <laughs> and uh, although I did become uh, pretty good friends with him uh, later in life. And, you know, you had guys like Jim Mandich, may he rest in peace. Joe Rose, who's still around doing stuff. Uh, Steve Goldstein. Those guys were considered the establishment. And we were considered the upstarts, the renegades, the rebels, whatever you want to call them. And eventually... The, the upstarts, the renegades, and rebels won, right? Like, that that's just how it is. It's kind of like a Star Wars theme, basically, in a lot of ways. <laughs> and we beat the Death Star, right, in a lot of ways. But uh, I think it's just that. I think it's the combination of the, the sports availability, the fact that there was real talent there already embedded. And my wife worked there in news. I've always said it's one of the best news cities in America, and there's always crazy crap happening, even outside of sports that you'd talk about on a talk radio show. And I think that lends to it. It, it. it really is, when you think about it, and when I was there, it was the 12th uh, ranked market in the country. So you had that, you had all these great, great talents that came out of the newspaper aspect of it with the Miami Herald and the Sun Sentinel. So it really was a major market, even though some people felt it was kind of a sleepy town. I think that the combination of the locals and the transients, there were so many transients, particularly from the Northeast and New York in particular, that I think helped shape it to being the market that it was and made people kind of work to be as good as they were. It was kind of iron sharpening iron, you know? Yeah, the, the New York factor is definitely part of it. They call Miami the sixth bureau in a lot of ways yeah. and yep. so forth. But, George, now you've been in Los Angeles for, for seven years. How do you sort of balance being a Miami guy? You know, those are your roots. You're, you know, um, I, I see you still cover, you know, some of the things like when the Miami Heat was was going deep into the playoffs into the NBA finals this year. You know, you're able to give that Miami perspective and, and so forth. But now, of course, being in Los Angeles and uh, adopting Los Angeles now as your your new uh, base. Well, it, it's at first it was a delicate balance, right, because you're coming to a city to do sports talk radio and you're an outsider and that is challenging. I had never done local radio as an outsider. I'd done Miami radio where I grew up and I'd done national radio a couple of times at ESPN and at Fox. And that's different. It doesn't matter because there's no local ties to anything there. So that was a bit of a challenge. But I think what helped me is that while there are clear differences between Miami and Los Angeles size being one of them, obviously, um, I think that the demographics are very similar heavy Hispanic markets. And while I'm not Mexican, which is the predominant Latino culture here in LA, I think the fact that there was a Latino voice kind of helped me win over the audience quicker maybe than it would have happened uh, maybe in another place. So I think that happened there. And the balance is this, I, on a daily basis, I'm covering Los Angeles sports, which let's face it, if something is happening in Los Angeles, it's probably a national story too, <laughs> more times than not. And with Miami, if they're deep, having deep playoff runs or there's something going on that becomes a national story, I think because I lived there for 30 plus years, I think ESPN understands, hey, there's probably no one better equipped to handle a story about Miami than George. So I, I'm able to kind of do that dance 
just based on the reporting that I would do for ESPN on Miami in regards to a Miami story involves the national audience. It's introducing the, t- the TV or even potentially the ESPN radio audience, the national radio audience to something, even though I don't do very much ESPN radio these days, it's more the TV stuff. But it's introducing that audience, the the national audience, to something going on in Miami. Whereas with L.A., um, we have a lot of people here in L.A. So they do occasionally will uh, they will occasionally pluck me to do some L.A. stuff. But I think a lot of that is is done by other people because there are people who have been here longer that have more roots here that have a better sense of the history. Um, you know, outside of the NBA, you know, Lakers, Clippers. Uh, there's there's definitely better people to go to at the company in regards to historical, you know, aspects of what's going on in Los Angeles. But on a day to day basis, I'm here. I'm embedded. I'm ingrained. We're talking Lakers, Clippers, uh, mostly Lakers. Uh, yeah. You know, Dodgers is big. Obviously, USC football is back. That's huge. The NFL uh, has been back here for a little while, so I think that's starting to really gain some momentum. So yeah, I, I think that's the balance. Basically, is. When things happen in Miami, TV generally comes to me. Uh, when things happen in L.A., it's mostly a radio play. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to hero.co to shop today. You know, uh, if many people who listen to this pod, we talk to a lot of play-by-players. It's something that you've started to do more and more of. How did uh, you know that transition to doing play-by-play uh, happen for you, George? I mean, we hear you on NBA, NFL, college football, um, you know, more and more of that play-by-play. Now, you know, someone like me, I started as a play-by-player and went into radio because there was just less moving, more opportunities. But it seems now there's so many more play-by-play opportunities popping up with ESPN Plus and so many of these other avenues for young broadcasters. How did you kind of uh, transition to the play-by-play world? Well, there's a lot of precedent for guys coming out of the studio or the sideline making that transition. And particularly at ESPN, one of my closest friends at ESPN, who I work with very regularly on NBA, is Mark Jones. And Phil knows because Mark worked in Miami many years ago too. And Mark went from that role to play-by-play, you know, a couple decades ago now. So you look at that, right? I, I look at him as a perfect model. Guys like Steve Levy, Carl Ravitch, et cetera. I mean, there's numerous others that I could mention, I'm sure. I mean, look at Fox, right? Kevin Burkhart went from the Mets sideline guy to a play-by-play guy. So I think that that's kind of a, a natural transition, And as great as sidelines are, and I enjoy it, and I still enjoy it to this day because I love being at the games, I think that there is a sense of, hey, I want to take that next step. And it's what I talked about earlier, right? The radio stuff, I think, helps in that regard because you're quick on your feet. And even though it's a bit of a different muscle, I had done some of it while I was in Miami. Interestingly enough, Mario Cristobal is the head coach of the University of Miami now. For two years, I was one of the voices of FIU football when he was the head coach there, and he went to two bowl games. So it, it had been a long time since I'd done it, but there was always an interest there. It just never materialized. And when I got a chance at ESPN, 
I went to them and I said, hey, I think this is kind of the route I want to take. I think that it's the natural evolution to my career. And I would say everyone was incredibly receptive. All my bosses in Bristol were like, oh, yeah, of course, that makes total sense. Let, let's try to figure out and navigate that path. So radio was the perfect place to start because why not? It was the perfect place to start in my career to begin with. And honestly, guys like Mike Breen and Adam Amin, who I worked with at ESPN, Dave Pash, you know, Jonesy, who I mentioned, but particularly the guys who had done radio, Breen, Amin, Pash, um, et cetera. Those guys, while all Ryan Rucco, while all those guys had been uh, very helpful, they Breen, I remember specifically in Adam Amin and Dave Pash, those three guys were like, if you really want to learn to do this, do it on radio first. Because if you can do it on radio first, you'll learn how to block and tackle, right? And then TV is all about scaling back, right? In radio, I guess the best way to describe it is you're drawing the picture and painting it and doing everything. Whereas on TV, you're just painting it. You're just doing the accents, right? The, the drawing is already there. Yeah. And I think that that's kind of the way I've done it. So I learned to do it on radio. I've been doing it now for a little over two years. I feel pretty confident in my ability to do a game now on radio, whether it was college football, the NFL, and certainly the NBA. And, uh, and then I've gotten some opportunities on TV where I did you know, several games of college football on TV last year. I've done a couple of years of G League stuff on NBA and Summer League. So, yeah, I'm just kind of working my way on trying to get more and more of those opportunities because the way I look at it is this. At 45 now, I'm in the second stage of my career, right? Where I've hit kind of maybe the midway point is a good way to describe it in a perfect world, right? If I can keep doing this, uh, I'd like to keep doing it for another 20. And what are the things I'd like to do for the next 20? Well, I'd like to continue the audio component, whatever that may be, whether it's a talk show, podcast, both, et cetera, and games. And to me, again, the natural evolution was to go from the sideline and studio, which I had done a lot of over the years, to transitioning to calling games. So fingers crossed, you know, I can stick around for a little longer and, and do those things and, you know, hopefully ride off into the sunset in some way, shape or form in this business. By the way, George mentioned Steve Levy, Carl Ravitch, Jason Jackson, Mark Jones. They have all been on the pod. So go back to the archives and listen to their journeys. Uh, I want to ask you about the difficulties that people don't understand in sideline reporting. I mean, you know, you famously, you know, you talk to guys like uh, Greg Popovich, not the <laughs> easiest. If you go to at Sedano on Twitter, uh, you will see his encounters. But how the preparation and how difficult people like talk about the sideline reporter all the time. You talk to a guy in game like that. I mean, it's got to be something that's not the easiest thing to do is to grab that guy, try to get something compelling from them in such a, a quick time. So talk a little bit about that skill set that people may not understand. And well, you nailed it. talking you, to you, pop, you, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. You, you nailed it. It's, you've got a very small amount of time, a finite amount of time to extract information. And hopefully, again, this is the second part of it for sure. Like information is key, but hopefully you're also entertaining in some way, shape or form, right? So I think it's that. And there's a ton of preparation. I Look, and, and the same thing goes for play-by-play -play too, but I would say even more so for sidelines that, you know, I'm sitting there getting ready for a game you know, a couple days out for sure, because 
at, you know, there was a time where I was doing 30 sideline games a year, a couple years ago. And, you know, so you're bouncing from game to game to game. Like you're doing a couple games a month, like, you know, plus I'm doing the other stuff that we've already alluded to. So you're constantly prepping for these games. And I would say on sidelines, easily 90 or 95% of the stuff you've prepped for is not even going to make the air. Like, and you just have to understand going into that role. That is going to be the case. So you've got, your, all your reporting that you can do, you're prepared to do all sorts of stuff on both sides. And that can go from injuries to storytelling about a player or a coach or a family member of a player or a coach or something, depending on what's transpired in their lives. Uh, perhaps even some news breaking as things are happening in real time. And then you mentioned the interviews. So particularly the coaches. And I would say for the most part, they're all pretty good sports. If I had to guess and put them on truth serum, none of them want to do this in game. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? They want to deal with their teams. So the fact that, you know, they, they, they do it at all is I think in an incredible show of, of, of uh, solidarity. I, I would imagine right? though, there's a part uh, of you that also is like, I don't really want to ask this guy a question right now either. <laughs> yeah. Well, there is that for sure too. Right. <laughs> so the pop one, um, I, I've told this story before, but I'll tell it for you uh, here again. Basically, I had that season, or maybe the, it was the season before. Either way, I had two pop games in a short amount of time. And they might have been the same season. It might have been like one season and then overlapped into another. But uh, the first one, I'll never forget, it was Craig Sager night. We were honoring Craig Sager, and we were in San Antonio, and they were playing the Rockets. And the meeting with him. And it was me, Mike Breen, and Mark Jackson on that game. And we went into the meeting with him. And he's great in these meetings. We have these coaches' meetings. We're off camera. And we're getting them just for context and storytelling. And most of the stuff is on the record. But there's some off-the-record stuff there, too. And so we talked to Pop. He's great in those meetings. And I remember we leave the meeting. And Breen comes up to me. And he says, hey, don't let him, um, you know, don't let that meeting, you know, make you think that he's not going to try to get you out there. And I said, okay, cool. You know, I, I, I'm prepared for that. And, you know, Israel Gutierrez, who worked sideline for many years as well, very close friend of mine, also from Miami, and worked at the Miami Herald for many years. He also kind of was texting me like, yo, like, just be ready. Like, you know, just be, just be quick. Don't, don't ask anything that's going to take too long. Just get in and out, you know? Like, he was giving me the advice. I was like, all right. But there's a rule in the NBA and not everyone in the audience knows this, but it's called the 20-point rule. So 20 points or more, coach doesn't have to do the interview, regardless of they're, whether they're winning or trailing in that scenario. So I'm doing this game. Home team is – or road team is the end of the first quarter. Home team is end of the third quarter. So third quarter's going on, and Houston's put putting it on San Antonio. So they've hit the gas, and all of a sudden we're at like 19, 20, 21, 22, and back to 19. And I'm going, oh, crap. I go, am I going to have to talk to them? And they're down 19? Like, this is the worst case scenario here. And then Izzy's texting me going, oh, boy, this is the worst case scenario for you. I'm like, thanks. I had already thought about that. I appreciate this. So I'm, like, sitting there going, oh, crap. And lo and behold, Houston puts the foot on the gas one more time. And I think they end the quarter up 25, so I don't have to do it. So I'm like, Whoosh. all right, no problem. So the next game I have them 
This is after the Kawhi trade and DeMar DeRozan trade. We're in Toronto. It's DeMar DeRozan in San, is on San Antonio now. It's his return game to Toronto, right? He's beloved in Toronto. So this is the one that I have to interview Pop in the first quarter. No, t- you know. So we go into the meeting that day, and I'll never forget this. Me, Mark Jones, and Doris Burke. And Toronto obviously was very good that year. They won the championship. And Doris says to Pop in the meeting, hey, Pop, you know, they seem to jump out on teams pretty quickly. What do you do if they jump out on you? He's like, ah, you know, I'll call a timeout. And I'll just start yelling at him and being like, what the hell are you guys doing or whatever? And he's laughing. And then she goes, yeah, and then poor George is going to have to talk to you. And then he looks at me and he goes, yeah. And then I'm going to look at you and go, what kind of bleeping question was that, right? <laughs> and I'm like, all right, we're all laughing. So we leave and Doris grabs me by the wrist and says, George, I'm telling you, I've been in your position multiple times over the years. Do not let that laughter fool you. And she goes, he will chew you up and spit you out when you get on camera out there. And I said, all right, DB, I know. Mike had mentioned it to me. I got it. So I appreciate it. So we're doing the game. And um, I I go out there. And in my head, I'm like, I'm only going to ask him one question. And then my follow-up question is going to be, I'm done. Like, I don't want to ask you any more questions. So I go out there and I said, uh, you know, you're here with Greg Popovich here in Toronto, pop DeMar's return game here to Toronto. How do you think he's fared thus far in the first quarter? And he says in true pop fashion, I think he's done well. And I'm like, okay, how about we just end it on that one? I think I want to come out ahead here. And then he looks at me and he looks up at the sky and he looks back at me with this smirk and he goes, I was really looking forward to a second question. <laughs> I start, I'm like kind of trying not to crack up, right? And But I kind of am, and he's kind of cracking up a little bit. And I say, okay, well, you know, Derek White, he's back in the lineup. He'd been out due to injury. Uh, how do you make – what do you say about his performance thus far? He goes, yeah, I think he's done well too. And I said, all right, Pop, thanks for the time. He's like, that was fun. And I said, yeah, we should do it again sometime. And he just starts laughing. He slaps me on the ass and he walks away. Uh, and uh, and that was and then I tossed it back to Jonesy and Doris and they were cracking up and they were like, George Sedano, that's the way you handle Greg Popovich. That was a master class on how you handle Greg Popovich. And I am not exaggerating here. I'm my Twitter blew up. Um, ESPN's NBA and Twitter posted the encounter. It blew up. Um, I must have gotten, I'm again, not exaggerating, nearly a hundred text messages. Who knew that many people were watching San Antonio and Toronto that I knew uh, on ESPN that night. Uh, but yeah, one of the most fun encounters. And it's crazy because I've never had another pop game again. Maybe I'll get some this year because uh, Wemby's in town now. Uh, but yeah, that was my most fun sideline experience. I've had other great ones. Steve Kerr was great one time with me. It's on my Instagram where this is the year Steph and Draymond and those guys were hurt. And um, they're playing the Lakers here. And they were down like 18 or 19 at the end of the first. And I said something like, you know, Steve, obviously the defensive effort, not what you expected. How do you remedy that? And he looks at me and he goes, I don't know. You got any ideas? And he goes, and then he answers the question. So, you know, look, if you if you're quick on your feet to answer your question ultimately and, and stop telling stories here, you got to be fast on your feet. If you're not, not ready for the goal in that role, 
then you're going to, you may struggle in that role because the coach can literally fun way very quickly. Great stuff, George. And I learned something new, the 20 point rule. I, I had no idea that that was in play on, on these NBA broad. Before we let you go, George, I, I do want to spend a little time with the following. You mentioned Israel Gutierrez. You also, you know, alluded to the, you know, Hispanic markets in Los Angeles and Miami, but I don't think guys like yourself get enough credit as being a trailblazer in terms of a Hispanic front facing on air talent in sports media. It's a, a tremendously underrepresented um, demographic when you think about, you know, the population of the United States and so forth. Could you comment on that a little bit? You know, what, what that means for you to be one of, one of the guys, you know, out there, but also perhaps, you know, where we're at on this evolution and, you know, what it's going to take to kind of move that needle. You know, it's, it's certainly a conversation that I've had with my bosses over the years, uh, you know, from the top on down, right? Like, and, I think that it's kind of what I mentioned earlier that when I said that I'm the Swiss army knife slash culture carrier, that's part of it is the Latino representation uh, or lack thereof in the entire business. Right. I think is a big, it's a big thing for me in the sense of, I want to be able to push that forward to the best of my ability. Right. And I think there are a lot of guys who trail uh, who blaze that trail rather uh, before me, guys like Pedro Gomez, may he rest in peace. He and I became very close at our time together at ESPN. And, you know, when he passed away, you know, I think that uh, a big part of our community uh, took that to heart, right? And I remember him, you know, speaking of Miami, right? He worked at the Miami Herald. That's where he started. And I remember reading his stories there back in those days and watching him on ESPN as kind of the first guy, right? to really do that and, and blaze that trail, you know, and then guys like myself and Dan Lebetard and Israel Gutierrez and a number of other people have been able to do that. You know, we have Bernardo Osuna, who's one of our big time boxing guys at ESPN. He's been there for a very, very long time as well. Uh, he's our in-ring reporter and he does play by play and he's one of our reporters on boxing. So, you know, we've had a lot of people over the years, Eduardo Perez, uh, obviously on, uh, on baseball has also a Miami guy. Right. His dad, Tony Perez, lives in Miami and he grew up in Miami, went to Florida State University, played in Major League Baseball. So there is a lot of pride in that aspect of it and opening those doors. I grew up watching ESPN as a kid and marveling at Stuart Scott, in, you know, as an F, you know, I'm not African-American, but as a minority, I was like, whoa, who is this guy? He's awesome. Right. He's so different. And I'm not by any means comparing myself or any of us to Stuart Scott, because you want to talk about one of one. But if I could even have a tenth of the impact for the culture and minorities and particularly Hispanics that he had for minorities and African-Americans, then I've done my job. Right. But yes, it is absolutely at the forefront of what I do each and every day. And whether it's on radio, whether it's on television and a conversation with my bosses. And I'll give ESPN a lot of credit because, you know, I'm not I guess I'm going to re reluctantly call a lot of other people out. But if you look at the other companies that do sports, um, I don't think there are any other Hispanics um, or at least none that come to mind immediately um, at some of the other shops. But at ESPN, there's always been that representation. I think that's obviously based on the you know the the genesis of that is basically the Walt Disney company right that 
believe in being great citizens of the world and diversity and inclusion. And our parent company is a big uh, proponent of that and a flag bearer of that. And I think that ESPN follows suit with that based on our parent company at, at Walt Disney. So, yeah. So, but just to answer your question, it is at the forefront of my mind every single time I'm out there doing anything, whether it's on the radio or I'm on camera somewhere doing a game or in a studio or whatever, that, hey, I want some young kid uh, who's Hispanic to say, oh, that guy's name is George Sedano, but he spells it with a J, right? And he's he's Hispanic and, you know, I'm Hispanic and maybe I can be, uh, you know, him one day or hopefully, and I would imagine, way better than him one day, right? So I do think that there is that sense of, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to carry that torch to help that next generation all the time uh, for Hispanics and minorities across the board and, and people in general, for sure. Uh, George Sedano, ESPN TV, ESPN Radio, ESPN LA. Many people uh, will hear him on an NBA, NFL, college football game here in the fall. And uh, if you turn on the TV at some point, you may see him there as well. A jack-of-all-trades, as he has said, George Sedano, kind enough to join us and tell us just a little bit about his path here on the Announcer Schedules podcast. George, thank you so much. Mike, Phil, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. All right. Thanks, George. There you go. Episode uh, with George Sedano here, and hopefully everybody enjoyed his journey with us here on the Announcer Schedules podcast. Go back and check out all the archives. We mentioned a few. Steve Levy, Carl Rabbit, Jason Jackson, Mark Jones. We recently, of course, had Kate Scott is our most recent conversation, so check that out. For Phil, I'm Mike. This has been the Announcer Schedules podcast with George Sedano. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.